Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Neil and Jordan podcast, podcast where two comedians talk like experts on subjects they are not experts on. I'm joined by Jordan. Jordan, how are you doing? Uh, disoriented, Neil. You know, I this is That's so a new weird. One. Yeah, well, this is a new experience. Disgruntled, you know, disoriented. Not disgruntled. Disinterested. It's usually words that begin with that prefix to describe your state whenever we do these podcasts. Is it? It seems to be. Disturbed. Man, I, don't, I don't know anymore. I'm in a weird headspace. You know what it was? Hmm. I had a really strong coffee. Isn't that the most pathetic thing you've ever heard in your life? So you're disoriented but because you had a really strong... My heart's been palpitating for like 12 hours. Whoa. Did you have I a don't know Turkey? what happened did to you, the batch. Did you have a Turkish coffee? No, it's worse than that. I, the only thing I can describe it to is having three of those. I don't know what happened, but that's the state I'm in at the moment. Um, I know it's extremely wussy, but I, I really understand how all of these youth types are always talking about the fact that I got anxiety. You youth know what it is? It's <laughs> drugs. Youth types. <laughs> you know. <laughs> you know, the, the rapscallions of the oh age. You are aging by I know. You are aging you are aging by the podcast. Yeah, and I can't deny it, can I? Oh, those are youth types <laughs> youth with types. their anxiety back in my day was just called passion. Yeah. We all had anxiety, then we went to the fucking war, and it became PTSD. Yeah. <laughs> it's not a real thing. Anxiety is a communist conspiracy. That obviously makes more sense to me. The Hawke-Keating government introduced anxiety into <laughs> Australia. It was never a thing. Those bloody commies brought it in to weaken our men. It's really funny because like, pretty much you are just reading a book at the moment that you could or more or less argue that, yeah, that's what's happening. The, the monogamy book. The monogamy of book. Of course I'm reading a monogamy book. Yes, you are. <laughs> It's Any called, man with uh, a ponytail is reading in the monogamy <laughs> book. Not even a ponytail. What have I got? I've got a ponytail, but I've also got the bottom half long. I've got the samurai The look. samurai. <laughs> yeah. Rock on. Well, I think it suits you anyway. Thank you. I don't, I, I don't want you to go back to um, whatever that haircut was that you had in year nine. The uh, Lebo from Western Sydney look. <laughs> I've been considering it. I have been <laughs> contemplating it because... You know how I'm obsessed with people, people's personalities not matching their uh, look? Mm. I mean, if I have that look, mm. uh, shaved backs and sides with the fade, mm. perfectly trimmed beard, mm. and then I come out talking about, oh, guys, I think monogamy is outdated, and I've got a house cat and house plans, how yeah. much of a contradiction is that going to be? Yeah, it's a huge one. I think just for the only contradiction. only own a pit bull. Hmm? Yeah, and then I need to get a sleeve tat. Yep. And a ute. Yeah, a Hilux. Yeah, it has to be a Hilux. Have anger issues? Well, I already kind of do. Okay. <laughs> Didn't know that, but okay. <laughs> don't we all? I don't know. I can't remember the last time I was visibly pissed. Oh, no. Actually, that was today. When does it become anger issues? When does it go from just... Because I've obviously, I get angry. Maybe mm. I don't have anger issues. Are you just, what if there's just a spectrum of anger and then we're uh, 
incorrectly pathologizing people who are on the higher end of that spectrum. They're just different. They are just different, that's true. But they're also psychos, Neil. And I don't think anybody wants to hang around anger issues people. We shouldn't diagnose them as anger issues. It's called uh, anger positive. Fuck. We need to normalize. We need to normalize anger issues. (laughs) Because what makes someone with anger issues more angry is just saying that they have anger issues. I don't know why that. There's no other emotion that's. I suppose they all are, aren't they? If you keep saying, "Why are you so depressed? Why are you so depressed?" I'll tell you why. That's a good point. No one's like, "Oh, you have sadness issues." No, Mm. it's it's depression, and you have sympathy for them. Yeah. No, that guy has anger issues. Yes. All the words that surround it, aggressive. Yeah. All of them are just, uh, well, there's two words, it seems, but none of them are positive. What other emotion, when there's an excess of it, becomes issues? Well... Management isn't an emotion. Uh, management issues. <laughs> management issues. Uh, yeah, there's no such thing as happiness issues. That's, that's Holy hell, point. if you are excessively happy, no one's trying to fix you. Manic. Maybe that's what mania is. Excessive happiness. Wow, this really is two comedians talking about things they don't want to talk about. No, 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 no. We know exactly what we're talking about here. So we, for some reason, our society just uh, doesn't appreciate anger for what it is, a natural human emotion, and pathologizes people who showcase a healthy amount of it as having (laughs) anger issues, when in reality, (laughs) they're just uh, exhibiting a perfectly normal human emotion. I like how this is a new banner of yours. How come if a dog if a <laughs> dog barks, they don't have the anger issues? No. Yeah, can we can we guys can we uh, get a hashtag trending? Normalize anger. Normalize anger issues. I wonder if that'd work. What do you honestly think their response would be to that? Well, because you're sort of nor- because you just have the word normalize before it, it might get accepted in those circles. This is your new theory. And you have been getting some results that are showing that the theory is correct. What, what results? I just said it. Just going on TikTok and saying, um, did you know that being racist is racist? And oh, you, saw, you didn't see things. him. Oh, yeah, true. I never thought yeah. of it that way before. Yeah, it's working. That's amazing. It's a good start. You've gained the system. Yeah, well, you you got to just have a ponytail and... Half yeah. your hair down and speak really candidly and compassionately. <laughs> and, then, and then people like whatever you say and just use words like normalize and trauma and abuse. Is that helping? Is this kind of shirt with the three buttons? Because that does make you look much more peaceful. Either that or you are one of those like low down soldiers in Zion in the Matrix. Wait, which ma- which... In the first Matrix movie? I think so. Weren't they all on ships wearing this kind of shirt? Real basic greys. It's been a while since I've seen that one. I do not. Yeah, and I watched on shrooms. Oh. <laughs> I think that's maybe, maybe that's why I was just paying attention to that shirt the whole time. And just I've never looked at this movie this way before. It's all happens. You just get dumber. I like that. That's what you remember the most: the shirt that these minor characters were wearing. I think so. I can't think of any other details. What else is there? Oh wow, it's a different world. Yeah, but you should have gotten that with the first time you saw it when you were ten. So yeah, so you're just picking up on the subtle, 
uh, costume choices now when you rewatch movies? <laughs> Is that what happens in your thirties? Yeah, they got a good wardrobe person on that one. <laughs> I know. Jesus, just me and kids that go to TAFE for design. Well, yeah, I don't know. Like, look, I think that's what happened. <laughs> <laughs> well, guys, normalize anger issues. Tell you what, let's let's start this podcast with a with a subscriber question. All right, this is a good one. And if you haven't subscribed already, what are you waiting for? All the subscription revenue goes straight to charity. neilcohacker.com slash podcast. It's a good time as well. Follow on Spotify or Apple Podcasts if you haven't already and share the podcast. Share it around if you like it. All right. Yeah. This question comes from Abe. That's a nice name. Yes, isn't it? It's very wholesome. Yeah, it is. He should be wearing this shirt. He probably is. I hope he does. As he's listening to this right now. I hope that answers your question too, getting a new wardrobe. <laughs> I'm 22 years old and just about to finish my undergraduate degree, meaning I'm currently faced with the po- prospect of going on to postgrad study and perhaps the life of academic drudgery or as an office worker who hates his boss. Not that it's explicitly expressed, but I feel immense pressure to follow down such a path from family and friends, despite it not being in my mind for any of the five or ten year plans I wrote for myself, open bracket, as inspired by the Jordan Shanks self-help channel, laughy face, close bracket. Aww. Consequently, I feel a constant sense of conflict between pursuing my more creative, open bracket, but less conventional, close bracket, dreams against the aforementioned expectations of those around me and the sense of security that this provides. As such, I was curious to hear your own potential experiences with this dilemma and how you overcame it, as well as any advice on how to do so. Cheers, boys. Love your work. Ah, oh, cheers. Abe, he's been a subscriber for a long time as well. So, Wow. Yeah, we just, his well, question just you. got lost in the pile. If anyone else, by the way, has been subscribed for a while and we haven't answered a question yet, just uh, send me an email, neil.business at outlook.com. I think we've missed one or two along the way. It's a very 90s email. I like it. Well, my other one was uh, Neil underscore Colhadkar at hotmail.com. I'm still rocking the hotmail. Yeah, fuck yeah. Just I didn't even retro. know it was real anymore. I thought oh, it was. I still a- got it. Still my main one. I'm glad because. The, the Neil Dot Business one just, just redirects to the hotmail one. It's just an alias. <laughs> <laughs> so professional. <laughs> Neil Dot Biz. You know what my very first. We'll get to the question, but you yeah, know what my well, very first. You wait your turn, eh? My, uh, my very first. No, I had two hotmails. Uh, one in primary school was badboy underscore diesel forty seven at hotmail dot com. I like it because people nicknamed me Diesel for some reason. I don't know. I don't even know why. Uh, <laughs> oh yeah, because they made up this uh, song where it goes Neil Banana Peel. He's made a steal. He runs on diesel, which is funny. It wasn't really an insult or a compliment either. It was just a cool jingle. Wait, hang on. I was. Was there ad. a question mark in the song? Yeah, <laughs> at the end he runs on. Diesel? That's actually really good comedic timing. I don't know how they came up with that. Some cool kids I went to primary school with. And then, they are. Um, and then in year eight, I did, my Hotmail became I underscore did underscore yo underscore mom underscore last underscore night at Hotmail.com. So for a long time, I <laughs> stuck with that all throughout high school. What? Well, because it's, you know, it's a standard <laughs> year eight kid thing to do. I know. Oh, did your mom last night? <laughs> Chicks, we uh, love this. I'm alpha as fuck. 
Well, I think we all know where you should be sending your emails to from now on. Yeah, I'm sure that email might even still be active. I don't know. Do you remember the password? No, no, I've lost the password for all my <laughs> early emails. But uh, I, for a while there, I had an old PC at my parents' house where it would just automatically log on. But then MSN, they got rid of, they just stopped offering the service. So what a shame. I was busy for 10 years, never to return. What a loss, man. Yeah. Because the fact that you came up with that means that that is the first person to have thought of making an email, I dig your mum. No, because there were so many underscores in there and it was yo mum. So I had to change it up a little bit. There probably wasn't. So you tried the your and someone had taken it. Look, I can't remember. I can't remember if I just assumed there were so many that were similar to that that I just put all the the (laughs) underscores in. (laughs) But anyway. Anyway, the question. Very wholesome question. Okay, so he wants to go into uh, 22 years old. I mean, I'm currently going into post-grad study. He's already going into post-grad at 22. That's pretty good. Perhaps the life of academic drudgery. Well, it already sounds like he's not that invested in becoming an academic. I would have thought that would have been great. You do research and you're your own... Well, you're not your own boss, but you have a lot of freedom. I, I would think. And research whatever you want. I think what he's saying, and correct me if I'm wrong, Abe, and we will get back to you in a year and a half, but (laughs) am I to understand that really what's happening here is you want to go and pursue something creative? Yeah, and it's risky, which it definitely is. Yeah, you're not lying. But But I'll tell you this, by the... Phrasing of your question, if that's what I'm to understand, and I think I do. Definitely sounds like that's something you you want to do. Yeah. You're just being cautious. I'll tell you what, if you choose the cautious option, you will live your life with regret. Now, if you at least try and pursue the creative option, it may not work out. It may not work out, but you won't have regrets. I'll tell you what, I feel really satisfied in that one field of my life. Abundantly satisfied. With having Look, pursued got, a creative route? Yeah, I have so many other things where I thought I've really dropped the ball on that and I've got regrets. I have no regrets whatsoever in my career vein. Well, that's because it worked. <laughs> yeah, yeah, true. There's hundreds of thousands of people ah! for which it didn't work. But the point is, you don't want to live with regret. You got to try, and and you know what? The younger you are when you start a creative career, the be- the, the better off you are, mm. because it's, a lot of it is experience and making connections, mm. and also not making the neural connections in your life that it's too you're too old to change. Yep, by twenty six, your brain is uh, cemented in its ways, and it seems that it's more socially acceptable to try and be an actor at 18. When you try and get an actor <laughs> like my girlfriend did, and she is succeeding, but she tried when she was 26, and there was a lot of raised eyebrows of, but you're even an adult at, now. Even at 26. 26 is too late. I think you have that real nice golden frame of 18 to 24 where everybody in society thinks, yeah, you're trying to live your best life. You're finding your roots. 
And then after sure. that, as Jordan Peterson says, 25 and still man-child is pretty sad. When it gets to 30, it's truly a tragedy. Well, <laughs> you can be that. I think that's whether or not he's a man-child is probably based on other personality factors. But yeah, I'm not saying option, you're a man-child, Abe. I which, don't know you. You could be. <laughs> it doesn't sound like you are because you are doing a PhD. You can always do it as a side hustle to begin with. Initially, that was always what I was planning to do. I was going to actually do my degree and do comedy on the side. Mm. Uh, but then it worked out extremely well when I was 19 and I actually dropped the degree. But mm. the plan was always do, do my degree either part-time or full-time, but uh, dedicate at least one to two days a week towards my creative pursuits and that way you still have the security of a safer job he doesn't actually specify what field he's going into there but I assume it's a safe one uh and you still have the outlet the creative outlet somewhere you can put time some, something you can put time and effort into and uh, improve your skills and then maybe by 25 26 you've built a little bit of a of either a following or you've improved your skill set and then you may have even saved up some money and, 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 and you can give it a shot for one or two years full time. I think that's taking the best of both worlds. You've still got the safe option. Sorry, you've still got the safety of uh, finishing your postgraduate degree and having that safe route available for you, but you're not foregoing um, the accumulation of creative skills and experience. Assuming you have the time, I don't know how intense this postgraduate degree may be. That, I suppose, is the only issue. But then gap year, that's another option as well. There's a, there's a lot well, of options. What are you, you doing your gap choose. year? Well, you pursue the creative interest and see how you feel after one year. All oh, right. I thought you just said get a job at IGA, which is what most people do. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to save up to go to America. Oh, the year's gone. <laughs> a lot of That's... people did that and then they couldn't go <laughs> I, know. Well, I was going to go to America for a year but I, instead I just had to backpack Save around up. WA oh what a shame that is a sad think about that as well that's 1% of your life at best is <laughs> 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 that fucking sad backpacking around WA <laughs> sucked into them well their oh. dreams didn't pan out yeah. And they had such lower dreams as well. Maybe you should just stick with the PhD. I don't know. Maybe we are <laughs> the wrong people to ask. It's just that, what's it called again? Uh, survivor syndrome or something? Where you just think that, oh, the plane crashed and I lived. God must love me. Maybe, that, maybe we're that. I don't know. But Possibly. Because the thing is, I'm- when you're saying that, I was thinking that's a very Neil answer. Because my answer was just be homeless until you make it. Just that's throw a, everything you have at it. And that's a very Jordan answer. Yeah. <laughs> so it, it really does show the differences in our yep. personalities. And I don't know which is the correct one now. Well, Because I always assume that was the way that you made it. By devoting every second you had on your passion. Look, if you are... Oh, it's a... It's a tem- depends what you value at the end of the day. Do you want the security of... If that the creative... Uh, Endeavor does not work out, you still have the security of this other job that you're still working at one or two days a week. Uh, Or if you truly believe you could be one of the best in whatever creative field this is, 
Maybe you should go all guns blazing. It's your it's your decision at the end of the day. Think about who you might be as a person. As you know, I'm I'm the builder type. So <laughs> I uh, flourish when I feel secure. Mm. So knowing that I had a fallback, which I actually don't. Well, I don't. I never actually did the degree. Well, I had a side business there for a while. Um, that was always a fallback, and well, now I actually don't. But I still feel sick. Maybe that's why. Maybe I need a, a, a one a day a week job. <laughs> really? No, I'm just, I'm just. Does it help you though, having this thought of, because I still feel that to this day, and I know that Isaac feels it of, what if it all just goes away tomorrow? Even though I'm pretty sure that can't happen in the age of the internet. Uh, no, yeah, Isaac talks about that. I, I don't, I've never had that thought. I don't think that will <laughs> touch wood, but unless uh, unless there's some sort of personal tragedy, but even getting getting cancelled now, that's not the end of your career. There's so many examples now of people who have survived cancellations. Yeah, their career takes a hit for a year or two. Sometimes they even come back stronger. Mm. Now, if we're talking getting cancelled for some sort of criminal negligence, that's different if you have to go to jail. Even then, if, if it's a 10-year jail sentence, your career's probably not 100% over. Probably not. You could you can And people come like back. it when you go to jail. People just have endless questions about, what's it like in there? De- depending on what you go there for. I mean, if you're there for pedophilia, I don't know if people <laughs> are going to come to your comedy after that, but... I don't know if it's tax fraud or something. And you know what? People don't care. Maybe they do. Who knows? There hasn't been any pedo comedians that have gone to jail and come back and just done a one night only tour. I don't know. I don't know where the limits are anymore. But yeah, so like we're not really sure if you can get cancelled. I think the real question now is just getting discovered. And I think that that is if you have some sort of talent, you will get discovered in this day and age. It's too easy for it not to be. Get on TikTok. Cannot recommend that enough. And 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 I use the analogy that six, seven years ago, when I was telling all the other comedians to get on Facebook and Instagram, none of them did it because they thought, oh, that's where all the kids are. I'm above that. And now they're all on those Talk. media platforms. No, they're on Facebook and Instagram trying to make it there now when all the corporate entities have taken over. Mm. And have made it impossible for someone without any form of investment to actually get traction on those platforms. Mm. And now I tell them, get on TikTok, and they say the exact same thing. Oh, that's where all the kids are. I don't know if I want to do that. Really? Do you not learn? Yes. Well, they'll make one or two, and then they'll stop. And See, I just this thought, was the thing how that... committed are you to this? How committed mm. are you to mm. making it when you make three TikToks and then you stop? I think that that actually, you now that you mentioned that, that's the real question that you're asking. How committed are you to your creative pursuits? But I'll tell you one thing. Every person I know that tries to do that middle of the road thing, after a while, it starts to wear down at them. Yeah, what I was suggesting, the best of both worlds situation. The best of both worlds situation I don't think works. I think that people are most happy when their soul is not in twain, when there's no conflict there where it's just, that's your life. That's what you're doing. I think, I've actually, it was okay. something that I was going to talk about in a previous, in the next podcast, but I think that, you know that, I think it's called choice paralysis. 
Mm. I've noticed that more and more. Option paralysis. I've noticed that more and more. The more people think, oh, I could be doing this or I could be doing that, the more they like Abe. Mm. So at the very least, look, I suppose actually, if you're going to just commit to the fact that you're saying that I'm just going to look at this as a hobby and this is going to be my main job, that isn't really conflict. I think more what I'm talking about is people that... You know what the best description is? You know when a bath is too lukewarm and you're kind of thinking, uh-huh. should I get out or should I put more hot water in? That's right. the feeling that I think a lot of these people are in. They're in a lukewarm bath their entire mm. life. It's not the most comfortable situation. It's not the most uncomfortable situation. It's a limbo. Mm. That's where you don't want to be caught. Okay. To you, though, I think, honestly, you are not admitting to yourself that you want to be doing a creative pursuit. And there are examples of people that have made great works, such as some author whose name escapes me. But he started every day <laughs> writing before he went to his job at his post office for two hours a day. And he wrote some of the best British works in British literature history, which is even more pathetic that I can't remember his name. But he's clearly famous, right? (laughs) Ruin the story by not knowing. uh, (laughs) All I can ever remember is examples. I've read too many self-help books and the actual (laughs) thing, the actual accomplishment isn't important. It's always just, but, you know, he gave it a go and look at where he is now, whoever he is. Uh, But I think that, like, he, the reason why is because he decided in those two days... I am going to sit down and I am going to write for those two hours before I go to work. You could have that similar lifestyle, but this thing here where you're kind of hiding the fact that you want to be doing something creative, you're not going to have a very fulfilling life. Yeah, so whichever path you do take, it sounds like, I agree with Jordan, it sounds like your heart is in the creative endeavor, but your brain might be more focused on the academic endeavor. Whichever one you do end up choosing... Uh, then don't look back. Be happy with the choice you've made because the grass is always greener. Mm. So find the positives and try to have a uh, positive bias and I think towards what you have chosen. That's true. Because you don't want to end up... Look, either way, if you choose one or the other, there's going to be some positives and some negatives to both avenues here. So, focus on the positives. Do that, but also, I think, never be in the position of not making a decision with your life. You've got to pick one and also understand that a decision isn't a life sentence either. Down the road, if it doesn't pan out, you can decide to make a completely different choice. You know? So, what you need to really be looking for is not sitting in that realm of uncertainty and after that i think that you'll just be a lot happier with you whatever you decide to do mm-hmm. yeah yeah go for that's it, it. just go pick it. one i think go for it go for it at least uh as a part-time endeavor and just the final part of your question which was our own experiences with this dilemma well as you know i <laughs> clearly had a lot of didn't have a dilemma 
Well, it, it worked out really quickly for me, so I was lucky. But I had other options. I always had uh, fallbacks. Mm. So there was the degree. But even after that, there was the side business, the side hustle. God, everyone's obsessed with side hustles now, aren't they? No, no. And it's just selling some random products on Amazon, isn't it? Half the time. I didn't know hustles. that that was what a side hustle is. Look but at that my makes sales. It so at much more annoying. The sales report. But I bought something else hustle. off Amazon and then and resell it on Amazon. <laughs> that's, that's what they do. And uh, find a way that you can make yourself, um, that you, your skills will be in demand in whatever this creative industry is. So if you are going into something like acting, don't just be an actor. Figure out how to operate a camera, how to direct, how to edit. Edit, that's a big one. If you have editing skills, if you have graphic design, basic editing, basic graphic design skills, it doesn't take long to learn. You can you can you can be self-taught in both those fields, and you become instantly that much more in demand in any creative field. He's not lying. Another thing, as well as a little acting tip, uh, you really should understand who you are as a person. Because I did not know this about casting, and of course I should. It makes so much sense. But they're just looking for a type of person. Yeah. Yeah, screen They're acting really is... not even looking for acting skills. That's sort of secondary. Not yeah, screen. Not yeah. on screen. Theatre is very different. Theatre yeah. is a performance. Screen acting, it's as being as natural as you can. Mm. Being real. I didn't know that that was the goal. Well, I remember doing a course back in year nine where they got these Hollywood uh, casting agents to come to... It was all a scam, by the way, but... Well, no, it was the real casting agent, but just the amount we paid was exorbitant and we didn't learn too much. But uh, they got us to do mock auditions for these casting agents and all the people who had studied acting and were passionate about it and it was their dream to become an actor overacted. They tried too hard, whereas there was one girl there. Because one of them was a casting director for Twilight. She was literally a fan of Twilight and she came... She was a massive fangirl of Twilight. She came to the casting workshop. The casting director was, you were fabulous, so natural, didn't look like you were overthinking, beautiful, loved it. I would cast you over all these other people. And the rest of us were all dedicated to our craft Working at it once a week, this random girl who's, I don't know if she's Team Edward or Team Jacob, <laughs> owned it. And that's why, man, <laughs> Jerry Seinfeld said it the best. Anyone off the street can walk in front of a camera and could do a good performance as an actor. Mm. Whereas no one can do that. as You cannot do that as a comedian. Nah. Maybe do five minutes to do an hour show. No random person off the street can do that. No. Whereas you can wing it as an actor. And that is the perfect example of that. <laughs> Damn, that was kind of right. Pissed me off so much. Everyone, and you know what actors are like—they're bitchy cunts. And like at the lunchtime, we were all just talking shit about the Twilight girl, and especially the girls—they were talking so much shit about her. Oh no, fucking Twilight bitch! So she designated to the seat by herself. Like in because a you know middle what, school every, movie. Well, because everyone else knew each other because we were all at that center together. Yeah. And then there were a few stragglers there that had just come for the workshop and she was one of them. And so I assumed that they must have had lunch together. But in our group, they were just bitching about her for the whole lunchtime. <laughs> <laughs> but she was successful. She owned it. Mm. She was natural. That's just a little anecdote there for acting. That's why I do not 
Look, I do respect actors, but I respect comedians more. I don't want to say it, but yeah. <laughs> and I'm biased. But, you know, okay, it's... obviously, you know, like you're Sir Ian McKellen or whatever the fuck his name is. I can't remember any British person's name. Theatre actors are very talented. Yeah, yeah, Mo- yeah. And most of them, most actors are trained in theatre anyway, so. Yeah, well, look. I'm not saying you I don't respect guys actors. are winging it. I respect comedians more. Well, I said that. No, you know an what? average comedian that? sucks. Yes, and I know. An average actor is usually quite good. I actually think that that's a huge thing with comedians as well. What? You know what you notice? I know everybody says this about comedy, but it's so true. The less you try, the better. It can be. Well, the more effortless it seems, the better it comes across. But it's it actually has to get to a point. No, okay. Obviously, that's it comes key. to a point where you've put in so much effort that the show becomes effortless. I suppose yeah. that's when it really counts, definitely. Yeah. But there seems to be this uncanny valley moment where there's a lot of people trying really hard. You know what? I, okay. This is the realization that I had performing again. When you are speaking on stage and it seems like you're just being very conversational, that's mm-hmm. when the big laughs hit. And there's that little hesitation before you say the punchline of, I'm about to say the joke. Mm. You can feel that it dissipates throughout the audience because you've kind of given off this little subconscious cue that the joke's coming. And as soon as there's a hint that the joke is coming, people just kind of wince for it for some reason. I don't know the psychology behind that. So you're saying when you are in the zone and you're uh, a natural comedic performer, you don't have that pause? Yeah, when you're in the zone, that's definitely what happens. And I suppose the whole struggle is trying to get into the zone. But I think that the zone really is just like you are having these thoughts for the first time and you're just talking to the audience. You're not trying to present to them opportunities to laugh, I suppose. Sure. You're kind of just talking, they laugh, and you just kind of stop for a second as in this kind of moment of, oh, yeah, I guess that was funny. Anyway, and then just keep going along. Yeah, As com- opposed to just okay. being like, here we go. You ready? You ready? There it is. Ta-da. It depends on the style. I mean, I think with stand-up comedy, you want to aim for that conversational style as opposed to performance style. Whereas if you're doing something like character comedy or sketch comedy, you do need theatrical elements there. And it's more of a performance. So when I'm doing stand-up, I just want to be in the zone and be as natural as possible and not overthink. But something like improv... You want elements of both. You want to be imp- you want to be natural there, but you also need to perform. You need to be big with your characters and. But don't you think that thinking is the real enemy there? If you are having a thought before you say something, sure. There's I don't know what happened. You know what? Again, I think it's this. I think it is that possibilities are opening up in your mind. So yeah, you so your brain goes, uh, uh, and then you you fuck it. So it's a it's mini form just... of option paralysis while you're on stage. You're not wrong. Hey. Wow. I never thought of it that way. Do you agree with it though? Yeah, I think I do now. So what you want to do is try and detach from the option paralysis in any facet of your life, but especially if you're a performer and you're on stage, you don't want to be overthinking and you don't want to be thinking, oh, what should I do in this next moment? It should just come naturally. And that happens from having endured many years of experience where you've dealt with option paralysis and you're, just, you're so 
it's so entrenched in your mind what the appropriate option is that you don't have to think about it. And then you can just take that idea and, and, and sort of project, project it onto any area of your life, really. You don't want to overthink anything. No. I think that the little mini part is actually something that gets in the way of not just performing, but it also gets in the way of day-to-day conversation. Yeah. It gets in the way of just having a happy, productive day. That's this man. That What he is talking about here is just a elongated version of us being on stage and thinking, fuck, do I go this angle or this angle? And, oh, no, okay, it's too late. The moment's gone. I've mm. I've gone with one of those options, but I had the thought in my head that maybe I could go with that option, and it's ruined that option as well. Yeah. It's ruined both. Maybe you would actually be a lot better off if you just went up on stage and talked. But in everyone's life, there's going to be crossroads. There's going to be choices to make. You can't purely just go through your life. Look, sorry, you can go through your life just winging it. But there will be some appropriate times for reflection and um, contemplating various decisions. But who do you think would get further? Somebody who has a bias to think about options or someone who has a bias to just go ahead and not think about the consequences? I don't know. I don't know. It depends because I'm definitely inclined to think about options. Yeah. And analyze things. The negative of that is it can I can overanalyze, but positive is I can make quite rational decisions about my life. Mm. So it just depends on the person and the circumstances, and and there's probably an element of luck involved as well. I don't. I wouldn't say that you just want to be the person who doesn't think about. Well, when you say doesn't think about the options ahead of you, you're still undergoing some process of analysis. You just may not be consciously aware of it. In what situation? Well, coming back to performance, you may feel like you're just in a flow state, but your brain is still operating and making choices. So what's the difference? Because you're probably right. Well, you're just in a... You may not be making conscious choices. Like I said, it's just so embedded in your mind what the right path to take is in a given scenario because it's you've been through every similar situation before. Yeah. That it just is... It naturally knows... What decision to take? So something like conversation even. Yeah. Once you're accustomed to the art of it, you're not overthinking whether or not it's an appropriate time to make a quip or to ask a question or to talk about yourself, to inquire about the other person. It just happens organically. Well, what about people that are just natural conversationalists? Well, some people are just... Na- sure, some people would just be better at it than others. But you could... I'm guessing you could probably train yourself to get into a very natural flow state of conversation. Mm. Much like the people who are natural conversationalists. Hmm. I'm just 
speculating now to no, I think you're right. I don't know, but you always want to the, the flow state. It's it sounds like flow state is what we're talking about, and that's something that can really be achieved in any aspect of your life. But the thing is, until you make that distinction, that really the opposite of a flow state is when you're thinking about all the things that you could be saying at that moment. Sure. In fact, a really good example of that is, and I think that that is a huge struggle with my life because I am a communicator. And I really hate being in that mode where I'm thinking about what words I'm going to say next. Bane of my existence. But my girlfriend, when she started acting, huge difference in her speech patterns to when she was working in the office. And I could see it in her eyes. And the way that she spoke was very stilted. And every three or four words, she would stop and correct herself and then continue on with the sentence. And this that, is when she started acting or prior? Prior to acting, about a year into acting, she stopped doing it. Her conversation became more flowy. Maybe some people are just stuck there. Well, of course they would be, wouldn't they? It could even be a byproduct of her actually pursuing what she really wants to. And she feels at ease with herself. So that's rubbed off in every aspect of her life, including her conversation skills. Possibly. Could be that. It could be. But acting is, uh, well, speaking is such a major part of acting. So I'm sure as she's doing it regularly, she's improving her speech patterns even in social conversation and not just in an acting context. Well, what happens when you're improvising? When are you in a flow state? What does that feel like as opposed to being on a stage doing stand-up? Well, you're... the distinction I was making was that I'm, I'm also not thinking. I'm not pondering the various options. It's just happening naturally. But what's also happening naturally is my uh, how vivacious and... Uh, extravagant I am on stage I'm really not doubting how big my characters need to be or what accent I'm adopting or what choice I uh, physical choice I may be making that's where I differentiate it to something like stand-up comedy where you just want to be a natural conversationalist whereas in no, improv, you want to be when, a natural performer no but even when you're doing stand-up you are still performing and you do put on accents, yes, but the, and you do put on characters. Okay, I do do that, but that it, I'll snap into an accent or a character and then snap back into just myself talking. Yeah. This is different to improv, that's all. But how's it different? Well, because one's acting and one is I'm try, you're trying to be yourself, your genuine self. Uh, okay, so the whole time that you're improvising, you're being a character. That's the difference. Okay. Mm -hmm. Whereas but, stand up, you may be being somewhat of a character, but really you're trying to articulate the thoughts that you believe in. But are you still having that moment when you're on stage improvising of, oh, do I put on this accent or do I put on, do I put on, yeah, you know what I'm saying? Yeah, you have that moment. Not, in an, in, not in a flow state. What about you? When you did sketch comedy, I'm sure there was a different mindset to when you do stand up no you know what happened to me for years i started reading about humor theory and then that downloaded into my brain uh -huh. and that acted as a permanent filter over what was happening and i became 
much worse at being on stage for years. I think I had a natural knack for being on stage. I think I was always good at it, even when I was five. Mm. But then I started reading about humor theory, and then I started, again, I started questioning, is this the right thing to do? Am I doing it right the whole time that you're on there? Oh, wow. So the theory actually impeded your ability to achieve a flow state. Well, they say that about everything. Every skill that you learn, you would probably be naturally better off than if you started reading the theory. Ah. And then what happens is after years of getting worse, you start getting better. Okay. So there's a there's a ceiling to how good you can get without reading the theory. Then in reading the theory, you initially go uh, get further away from the ceiling, but then you have the ability to transcend that. People do What's it as athletes, effect? same is thing with athletes. Dun- Dunning-Kruger effect? Where you... No, no, no. Dunning-Kruger effect is... That's where you think you're amazing, but then... You don't know shit. You realize you're... Yeah. No. It's similar. I don't know what this is, but I hear athletes talk about it all the time where somebody notices that they're a fast runner and then a coach just sits there and says, no, you're doing that wrong, do it again. And the way that they're teaching them to run is completely different to how yeah. they naturally run. And so they get stilted and they fall over a lot and very frustrated because mm. they're pretty much relearning to walk. Sure. Which I can't remember doing it as a baby, but I can imagine that that would have sucked. Yeah. So I think that that's what happened when I started to learn humor theory, but I think at the end of that, what happens is you understand all the mechanics and really all the humor theory actually helps with was writing jokes. It doesn't actually help with performing. That's a completely different art. And that's something that I'm quite scared of looking into because now my girlfriend has a library full of performance books, but I know that if I open them up, Probably have a couple of years there where I'm much poorer on stage. You've got to do it. If what you said is correct, which is that after reading the theory, yes, there'll be an initial dip in your performance quality, but then that's it so will painful reach an now. E- even higher peak. Maybe. I don't like Look, we're our worst. You're your worst critic. The average audience member is not going to. Uh, observe a difference between say you being uh 80% at your best versus 85% at your best does that happen to you as well i've noticed that so much on the road again sorry it's just because i've been off for a year obviously hmm. and you go back some nights you think you kill it uh and then other nights you think that you've absolutely bombed and people will come up afterwards and say that was incredible yeah, I suppose because the they just don't have anything to compare. Every time I think of bombed, people will be the most complimentary in their praise. I don't know what that's about. I don't know if one, they're just trying to be sympathetic. I hope not. But also, they probably haven't seen a lot of stand-up. So, yeah, you're right. They don't have a lot to compare it to. Whereas I'm comparing it to every other performance I've ever done. You know what I actually think is the dead giveaway? I heard someone say this about movies. Yeah. When a good film finishes, you notice that the audience sits there and just watches the credits go up for a bit. And if the movie was substandard, they just get up and leave. So they're paying their respects to the people who contributed? I think they're just kind of letting it sit for a second. Okay. 
So is that what you're aiming for? People to sit there after you finish the show? No. Well, obviously now I am aiming for that, but I, when I saw that, I couldn't unsee it. Now that I've been touring for a bit, I think when I do have a really good show, the audience does sit there and then they talk to each other and be like, oh my God, that was so good. And when you actually have a bad night, they kind of go out. The biggest indicator I can see as to the quality of the show is whether people are checking their phones during the show. I see someone checking a phone during the show and I oof, kills my confidence. Why? Because they're looking for the time. Yeah. Oh, oh how much oh, Well, I don't know what they're looking for. The fact that they aren't fully immersed in the show says a lot. Mm. However, there's been times where I've turned it around. So early on in the show, I see a few people glancing at their phones and then and then they're hooked. You know what I would actually compare it to? You know when I can't believe we're talking about this, but pickup artists talk about girls getting that glassy look mm. where they're just so immersed in everything that you're saying. Mm. And you have them wrapped around your finger. Mm. You can achieve that state with an audience where anything you say they will laugh at and they will not be looking at their phones, fully engaged in everything you're saying, not just engaged in what you're saying, engaged in the in the ebb and flow. The rhythm. The, yes, the rhythm. They will laugh almost prematurely because they're just on board with, as you say, the rhythm of the show. So it's a beautiful, it's it's almost like one organism, the comedian and the, or just the performer and the audience there. But you know, the, 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 yeah, the converse to that is people checking their phones sporadically and you just know, oh, man. Doesn't help. Doesn't no. help me if they're going to do that. But I've been in shows where I haven't been fully immersed and you can't help it. No. And I think, as always, it's sometimes it's your fault, sometimes it's theirs, sometimes it's a combination. But it does remind me that the French chose to call the camera a female. In their language, it's a, mm-hmm. you know, to make love to the camera. So what you're doing, they're uh, in touch. With it's, I don't think making love, it's flirting with the audience, isn't it? That's what you're really doing there. It's that part mm. of the seduction process. You're taking them on a journey. Taking them on a journey. And it is the same when you're doing a, a, a sketch or anything else like that. Yep, because the great comedians or performers will be able to have that push and pull element as well where... You, you can almost get them offside a little bit with one joke, but then you've got them in a little bit of a state where then the next joke relieves the tension. So if you constantly build up the tension, relieve the tension, build up the tension, relieve the tension, then you can get to more and more controversial and provocative jokes or content mm. because mm. you've gotten them in this state of tension release, tension release. Mm. I actually, now that, that I think about it, that is a big thing that I have. I have a couple of risque jokes in it, and it's really just to test how much the audience is on board. Because after yeah. you drop a joke that is risque and the audience isn't on board, you can feel the tension. Sometimes it's fun to revel in that tension. If you're confident your next joke will break that tension, if you have a really good series of jokes where... 
you know you're purposefully building the tension and there's a few throwaway lines which they may not laugh at, which in some instances they're not laughing at could even be better because they feel more of the tension themselves, which means when that tension is released, it's even bigger. Mm. But that is, then you're talking about real uh, high level, not just comedy, any any form of performance there. Mm, mm, mm. So, you know, Bill Burr's the master of that, obviously. Mm. It's a great skill That's to have. really what they're paying for. It's so fun to do that, to toy with the audience like that, to come in there and say a really outlandish, provocative statement, and you feel the tension in the room, <laughs> and you're just playing with them. And you're if you're confident enough and you know you're going to get them eventually, it's great. It's such a great feeling. I suppose it's also the same thing that happens when you're tushing kids. T- what? Tushing? What's that? Just kind of pissing them off. <laughs> yeah. Is that what you do? You just go... <laughs> well, like, Is that your warm-up, pissing off kids? It's like... And also the same thing with... Mammals have the same thing. They have a... Play. They actually have that tension release mechanism sure. in them. Yeah. And that's what happens with kids. I've noticed it a lot. You know who the master of that is? My dad. Every time my dad is in a room with like a five-year-old, he knows exactly how to get that five-year-old to really like him. Whereas other people walk in and the five-year-old will be fairly indifferent to them. Mm. But it's because he just prods them enough. And I've seen him go overboard where the kid just has a tantrum and runs off. And that's the end of that. Is he? Does he work with kids? No, I don't know. He's just always naturally been really good with him. What does your dad do? He's a builder. Maybe that's another oh, okay. thing as well. I think they just might be kind of... I I really... Uh, you know what? I think that is the thing. When, when you see people that are kind of heady and they're around kids, they can't relate to them. Yeah. You have to be more true, in your yeah. body, I suppose, to hang around a kid. Got to be in the moment. You got to be more in the moment. Mm-hmm. But that's something that I've always noticed with him is that he is able to get the kid in hysterics and a huge part of it is exactly what you're saying. So there really isn't that much difference between the skill set of performing, seduction, like just playing around with mates, just hanging around with kids. It's all that same thing of the push-pull mechanism, isn't it? I think maybe it just builds like trust or something. I don't know. Sure, it's a, it's a major component of emotional and social intelligence. Must be. You know why? You know why? Because you are actually saying this is the borderline. I know where the borderline mm. in the relationship is at this point. Yeah, and I'm going to play around with it. Yeah. That, first of all, showcases a lot of trust that you have within yourself, but also with the person that you are conversing with. Because if it's all pull, well, you're clearly a very needy person. Mm. And that doesn't work. And if it's all push, well, <laughs> that's not going to curry any favors. You have anger issues. Yeah. <laughs> Which we've we've discussed that that's not a thing, Jordan. (laughs) We're normalizing that. Maybe that's it. Well, that's even with something like banter. There's a push-pull mechanism at play there, isn't there? Mm. No, there is. It is with all of them. Mm, Because if you push too hard, then that goes beyond banter. If you're not pushing hard enough, then that shows any almost it's almost indicative of insecurity and a lack of comfort. Mm. 
So, you know, oh, you got a funny shape, you got a funny shaped head or whatever versus, ha ha, you're divorced and you should kill yourself. <laughs> There's a difference definitely there. Definitely not banter, right? No. No, it is not. But the first one, because there's a laugh at the end and hopefully it's a mutual laugh because you've tested, you've pushed the boundary enough so that the other person can acknowledge that it's not a flaw, but it's a foible they may have. And they're able to release that tension in in the, in the uh, communal laughter that ensues. <laughs> really, the, the science of banter. But there is a science, there must be a science to it, right? Yeah, sure. I think you're right. I think a lot of these basic human interactions involve some level of push-pull. No, man, sorry. It's just I've got really nothing to add. I'm just trying to absorb No, but this is great. I think it's like kind of interesting. Now, I'm going to look for this everywhere. What about in a sale? If someone's trying to sell you something, is there? Yeah, because you can't push too hard for a sale either, nor can you. What would be a? What would be an example of? You know what? Excessive pushing or excessive pulling if you're trying to sell something to well, someone. A classic tactic with sales would be say something like, "Look, I'd really like to sell you one of these things, but there's just a limited offer, and we've already got three people that have come in and they're very interested in it. So if you're not interested in it, that's fine. We'll just sell it to someone else. Something like that is yeah. obviously going to increase how much you want it. Mm, so you're not pulling too hard. You're subtle. It's a subtle pull there. It's almost you're pushing. You them are away pushing them away. You are pushing saying, them away a bit. Uh, there's already three people who have offered here. But then, so you know then, what else you do? Oh, my God. The subtle- this is exactly what happened when I was looking at a house. This is exactly how real estate agents do it. They, they always say that. There's a massive high demand for this house. I can't mm, the psychology really get of that. This off. But, hey, you know what, though? You know, I like you, so I'm just going to try and get you the house, yeah? <sighs> always do that kind of stuff. Yeah. So, really, it's they are. They're just pull. putting that... Yeah, they're putting that like time limits on it. They are doing, I remember this about Neil Strauss. He was saying that the game, he started going around and teaching it at seminars as a bunch of sales forces coming to him. People that were selling things like Amway or internet providers and cars, all of that. It all works. And really all the game was, was just stepping down how to, I don't know, I guess create, trust as quickly as possible with someone and i think that maybe that's a reason why it gives them trust you're right because you're in that in that real estate scenario first of all the way he's saying but i like you i trust you Mm. that's a pull there exactly you're a good guy company yeah Yeah. but the push is oh three people are already interested in this yeah you know, it's in high demand. Yeah. I don't know if you're going to get it. And you think, no, hang on. I want to. That makes you want to. <laughs> yes. Well, why is it so good? I don't want to miss out on it. Yeah. I want to at least know what I'm missing out on. Give me some more information. Yeah. So that's where the push comes in. Mm. Now, I wonder if you could just break down any any form of human interaction where you're trying to get something out of someone else, which is basically all of them. The most effective way is just. Yeah, maybe that's why people are attracted to toxic people because they offer that push-pull experience and elements of tension. Whereas yes, if you're do. just the classic, 
loving boyfriend or girlfriend that's always texting back and is never late, does exactly what the other person wants, you're not offering any form of push. It's probably why everybody's always commenting on the fact that junkies seem to be really in love with each other. (laughs) What? What? Have you ever seen that? I swear every time I go to Central and hang around waiting for someone to pick me up, which hasn't happened since I was, what, 18, but every time I did, I used to hang around and there was junkies there. And if it was a male and female junkie, in the span of you staying there, they would have had a huge yelling match at each other. They might have even gotten physical. And then they would have made up, hugged, cried, gone through the entire array of peaks and troughs within five minutes. That must be it because they're they're constantly highlighting... Sort of. So because that's what the drugs are really doing, right? They're giving you immense peaks and... I think so. And immense lows, whereas mm. the the normal sober human experience would still have your peaks and troughs, but not to the same degree. You know what else is happening in a push-pull dynamic? You're creating value for yourself. Yeah. And Damn. then you are saying... You know what? What? Oh, go on, go on. No, no, go on. Oh, well, I was just going to say, I just was reminded of... Your description of all the comedians you saw, which is that current wave of self-deprecating but too self-deprecating, just saddening more than humor-evoking, and they're lacking push. It's all pull. (laughs) Oh, my God. It's so true. This made me completely rethink my set now. I'm going to think about it in terms of push-pull. Because some of the best jokes I I think that I've written are ones that do have an element of push in them. You know, a point of tension or contention about something I'm saying, something provocative, something where the audience is confused, perplexed, not sure where I'm taking it. And then I reveal, ah, that's where I was going. That's what I was trying to say. And there's a huge, there's almost relief in the tension there. Mm. But that just makes the laugh even bigger because mm. you've taken them on a big emotional journey. Mm. In, the, in the same way, that's why they say uh, toxic relationships are so addictive because you go through a period where you hate each other and have a crazy fight, but then you, uh, what do they call it? Trauma bonding where uh, it, someone has just committed domestic violence and then says, but I love you, and I, I'm doing this because I love you, and I'm here for you, that you're the first person that they're bonding with after the act of violence. Therefore, you're more likely to grow really attached to that person because they're showing you love after you've just experienced a really um, tumultuous and stressful situation. Mm. So in a weird way, that's a push-pull. In a very dark and sinister way, that is a push-pull dynamic as well. Well, that's a tactic that pimps use on prostitutes. Is it? Is it an actual tactic? I thought they were just depraved and they didn't do it consciously. But. No, dude. Pimps is pimping would have to be the most psychological game on earth. But really, that's wow. what we're talking about before. When you're saying any middleman, any middleman, their entire game is pure psychology because they're useless. <laughs> really, what does a pimp do? 
They offer protection. Most of the time, they're the ones beating the prostitutes. So, what are they really offering protection from? Pimps are the managers of the prostitution world. Yeah, they are. Wow. We have a lot in common with you, sex workers. We do. Because we hate the middlemen that do nothing. No, it's really the same thing. That's what I can offer you. I can offer you a great deal. Yeah, I'll take 30%, but I'll get you more. And they never get you more. No. No, but they intoxicate you into the contract, don't they? Managers are pimps. And they're perfectly happy to break the contract as well. Again, that's just more psychological pressure. God damn. But that's something that pimps do, apparently. Uh, I think it was... Dave Chappelle was talking about it, but then I actually went and read the book. It was by this pimp called Iceberg Slim. You know why he was called Iceberg Slim? Because once... When he was in a bar, someone came in trying to assassinate someone in that bar and they shot a bullet through his hat <laughs> and he didn't even look up and just finished his drink. And that's why they called him Iceberg Slim because he's that fucking cold. Nerves <laughs> of steel there. Jesus Isn't that Christ. incredible? Maybe it was just the, the pure shock of the situation he didn't even know what to do probably but he spun it as yeah i'm just so cool yeah man. that cold i've been through and seen through everything i mean bullet through the hat the I legend is that. you kind of just want to buy into that <laughs> legend don't you that you someone do. is that <laughs> calm damn um but he one of the management tools that they were talking about he was talking to an older pimp and they said how do i get this prostitute to go out and work the beat harder and they said go back and just beat her and then afterwards (sighs) go and treat her wounds and then she will be so grateful that someone's treating her wounds that she'll forget that you were the one that beat her well that is the psychology of abusive relationships isn't it toxic relationships yeah isn't it it's how you keep people under control, especially if it's someone who is already lacking self-worth and insecure, which I'm assuming, well, a prostitute on the street probably is. And this is why people don't leave DV relationships. That's and they completely reason. deny it in their head that it's happening. There are other reasons, sure, but yeah, that's but one that's of the reasons. But that's got to be one of the dynamics at play. I guess, as you're saying, it's, it's the, the darker side of the push-pull, but that's the extremity of it. Yeah, because if it was total push and just the violence... And uh, see, this is the other thing as well. Like, they would uh, leave. You know, my dad playing around with five-year-olds and just, like, poking their ribs a little bit just so that the five-year-old wants to, like, play around with them and just, like, be like, look at my blocks and stuff. Hmm. That's also push-pull. So it doesn't. it's not necessarily that it's a dark thing. No, sure. The situation we were talking about previously is a dark situation, but the push-pull is just a... It seems like it's a um, consistent facet of human interaction. And anybody that doesn't do it, as you were saying, if someone's all pull, someone's going to hate that person. And if they're all push, someone's going to hate that person. Well, I'm going to report back and I'm going to look for push-pull now in every interaction I have. Now that I've heard it, I can't unhear it. And hopefully, once I see it, I won't be able to unsee it because I wonder if... Okay, just before we wrap this one up, um, 
because we were talking about push pull within the context of a live performance with a comedian and their audience. Could there be some form of push pull with a uh, online comedian and their respective audience? So when you have an online audience, is there a push pull mechanism at play? Hell, this this audience that's listening to this podcast, is there any form of push pull mechanism at play here? Yeah, there would be because we're toying with ideas, and I think that as soon as you do that, there's going to be a natural push pull in that things that people agree with, they're going to be like, yeah, I like these people. And then you say something that they don't agree with, and they're like, fucking idiot, fuck them. Yeah, but that keeps them, if it's just enough, if it's just a bit more pull than push, you keep people hooked. Well, somebody just said this. Oh, shit. Uh, I think it was one of my editors. They were looking at the channel history of mine, and they said that over... The span of the channel, it's almost at 500,000 and it's lost almost 100,000 subscribers. Only? Mine's lost like two and a half, 200 and something thousand subscribers over the Mm. duration of its Mm. lifetime. Mm. Because I've continually changed my brand, if, if you will, on my main YouTube channel. Oh, is that what's happening there? Well, I went from intense Australian caricatures to highbrow political satire and then kept jumping in between both. And there's not much of a crossover in audience between nah. the the in the uh the fervent followers for each of those respective uh paths that I take. You're definitely not wrong. You know, imagine being someone who uh really enjoyed modern education and then seeing me do Sydney in three minutes, <laughs> they're probably going to mm. unsubscribe. Right. Okay. So I had a lot of that. <laughs> but that's where it goes. To, the, the push is so hard that I can't even, they don't even let me pull back. That must be what was happening there. Yeah, because I'm trying to think the people who have sustained a, an online career over a decade or more, They've always evolved. Their content has changed. So someone like Philip DeFranco started doing sketches and now he does Did this. He? Yeah, I think so. We definitely started doing vlogs. It was very different to what he does now, which okay. is a sort of news. entertainment news yeah. of the internet world. Yeah, 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 yeah. You know, it's, you think of some people who haven't changed and it's not as though they died out, but they stayed very stagnant. Okay, whether you like him or not, Logan Paul definitely changed. Because he started off making quickfire vines, then he went into longer form vlogging, then he became a brand in itself and started boxing, and he's now about to fight Floyd Mayweather. And he's now no longer just a well, he's he's still known as a YouTuber, but he's borderline a household name now. I don't mm. know, if my, I don't know if our parents would know someone like the Paul brothers, but uh, almost everyone in their twenties. A lot of people in their 30s, most people in their teens would definitely know Jake and Logan Paul. Mm. They're not just niche internet creators anymore. They are, no, they are not. They're getting close to household names. Mm. And that's because they continually change. So there's right now, they're well, they're pushing away a lot of fight fans. But in a weird way, they're pulling them as well because they're bringing them big, highly anticipated 
events and they and then fight fans want to see them get bashed they want to see what happens to these villains but also just on a really primal level even though i don't follow their content you know what i'm a lot more lenient on jake and logan paul than everybody else oh, is. same but i think that look it's just i don't really pay attention to anyone's content because i don't have the time but the content that i've seen of theirs i they're like damn that's sticky the whole way through i'm not bored but uh when it comes to jake paul fighting someone even though i don't have barely any connection to them at all i want to know who won yeah so they do just take a moment of your attention Mm. it's a story unfolding it's Mm. he's an anti-hero for many people and for other people, he's a villain, but they want to see the story unfold. This is the that's another dynamic I think that just Wishful comes in there. longevity throughout everything. Is that you either want to be loved or hated. You definitely don't want indifference. Indifference is a sure. death rattle. Yeah. As soon as people have this thing of oh, yeah, they're right, I guess you get forgotten. But as you said, mm. even if you are a villain, you're at least memorable. You stick around in people's minds. And also, if it is somebody who is a villain in other people's minds, if you are a fan of them, you kind of become more of a fan of them because you have to dig your heels in and entrench why you are a fan of them. You sort of have to rationalize. If you're even in an argument with someone saying, oh, how can you like them? You know, as a great example of that, Jordan Peterson. Wow. In our sphere of the internet. You constantly have, because you constantly have to defend that person, you grow more attached to them. Yeah. Or vice versa, because there's so many people that hate him, they have to constantly reinforce in their minds why they hate Jordan Peterson. And it's not always that you're just reinforcing why he shouldn't be perceived as a villain, but you're reinforcing the bond you have with said person because people are doubting that someone could offer you anything of substance, but you're constantly having to articulate, no, this is what the person does offer. This is how good they are. You're constantly having to do the work that they should be doing for themselves. But that's the genius of it. Hey. Yes, yes. And again, coming circling back to a relationship, for example, if someone's continually, there's, there's, everyone will have a friend that is with someone they probably shouldn't be with. Who's either cheated on them numerous times or continually lied to them, been a bad partner. But they're still with them. And it's because there's a similar dynamic at play. They're constantly having to justify why that person is not actually the bad person that everyone sees. So in their mind, they're continually having to express the positives of that person's character true and probably subconsciously um solidifies the attachment they have to them Hmm. so i always talk about how on the other podcast how the opinion of the friends can be the killer in any relationship as as soon as the friends have turned against the partner you're only so immune to their collective opinion but now i'm wondering if the bond you have with your primary partner is actually it trumps whatever your friends may think that can actually be a relationship strengthener in a way because well you're facing adversity 
through the bond you have with this person. That's what happens in DV relationships. A lot of the time, people will say, you need to get out of that relationship because they're beating you. Mm. And then they say, no, you're crazy. And then they just stop talking to those friends and family. They slowly turn into that partner and get rid of and sever all the rest of their relationships. Yeah, because if it's a long-term relationship and you then have to deal with the uh, cold, hard truth that you made a terrible choice in your life and there's no coming back from that. Maybe it's even more basic than try that. and save it at least or you'd, you'd rather try and... You'd rather live ignorantly thinking that they're an imperfect but good enough partner as opposed to admitting that you've been taken advantage of and you've been abused for that long because that says a lot about you. That's a confronting thing to have to deal with. You know what else it could be? It could simply be that your emotions are getting peaked in a way that your friends and family are not peaking those emotions. Yeah, there's a prop there's look, there's a lot of elements at play. Because the example that's always getting thrown around in self-help is there's a reason Michael Jackson is the biggest selling recording artist in human history. Yes, a lot of that was the fact that it was the eighties and so there was no piracy per se. Mm. But the other thing was that he just came out onto the scene and then he had this like really high up-tempo dance beat that was, uh, you know, like the, these incredible dance moves that came with it. Really, there's nothing to compare it with. Every other style of music mm. kind of had one of those elements, but then he just comes on and he's got this really larger-than-life persona with a lot of flashing lights. He's sick at dancing. He has this like, like – the thing is everybody understands this, right? Nobody hates, I swear I've never come across somebody that's just like, Thriller sucks, you know? <laughs> mm. I've never heard anyone, everyone's always no. just like, no, his hits are hits. But, but what is that, how is that similar to? Well, it's kind of, it transfers into how many sales the guy produced in his life and how many record deals he had and how many sponsorships he had. Sure, but how's that analog analogous to the push-pull dynamic or what? Or people having to justify... In a domestic violence relationship, I'm imagining that that person, usually because if your partner is violent, the lows are going to be low. It's the same with the junkies. The lows are going to be low yeah. and the highs are going to be high. Mm. Mm. And so when you're just hanging around your friends and they're just sitting there being like, is there this picture of a sausage dog on Instagram? It's, it's not going to peak your emotions the same way. Mm. Every day kind of becomes a thrill ride. So Michael Jackson's music peaked people's emotions like they had never been peaked before? I think so. Hmm. Or since there's been very few acts that are really as exciting as he is. Where was the push with him? Where did he... He changed his message in each album. I don't know, I'd have to... To well, you know work. what? Thriller, when that came out, apparently it was uh, controversial for the reason that it was showing dead zombies so on stage. And so that was like very satanic. taboo. Yeah. Right? Yeah. All pop music seems to have some form of devilish and satanic themes. 
A lot of it does. And I wonder if that's a way to... You're giving people this emotional high with the upbeat rhythm and the positive vibes, but then the imagery is dark and sinister. So you're giving... You're offering that dichotomy of human experience within something as simple as a song. Mm. And if you listen to Michael Jackson's albums as well, there are songs there that are tearjerkers. There's everything. There's he's, everything he's got in it. it all. Yeah. Like my favorite country artists. But they don't have peaks. They just have lows. It's just an oh, album no, 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 of no, no, valleys. No, 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 no. They've got some peaks, bro. Yeah? Yeah, there's some upbeat country songs. By the way, thank you to everyone who uh, followed my country playlist. About 15 of you did. <laughs> That's fucking hilarious. And I have to just, all right, we'll end it on this, but I have to just say a few things about that playlist, which Frenchie has brought up. Um, yes, there's some songs on there that are not country. Working Class Man by Jimmy Barnes is on there. Definitely not a country song. Okay. It has a blue collar feel. And that's what I get from country. A guy who's just worked. The whole day, broken a sweat, wants to go home to his missus. That's exactly what you get from Working Class Man. Mm. And then The Horses by Daryl Braithwaite is there. Definitely not a country song. You know what? I think it's just because Horses is in the name and I'm just a fucking city idiot. That's like, yeah, close enough. (laughs) That's what they do in the country, right? (laughs) And then there's an Elvis song. I'd say, yeah, he's country-ish. Not really. He's rock and roll, but... It feel it's just a feeling for me. It feels country. Yeah. Feels Midwest American. Elvis. He's from isn't he, isn't he from Memphis or something? I don't know. You're anyway. Kind of right. He just feels country. So that's why I just have to justify those few songs yeah, yeah. that are not country songs. Especially the horses. <laughs> I, <just put> <laughs> I had like, to justify oh, it. Oh horses. <laughs> that's country. That's a country thing. <laughs> so good having to deflect preemptive criticism of this playlist. It really means yeah. a lot to you, doesn't it? It means a lot. <laughs> it says a lot about who I am, this playlist. So, little highlight on TikTok where I was talking about uh, country music went really. A few of these podcast highlights are going decently well on TikTok, actually, because I'm specifically trying to clip out things that I know could be somewhat controversial so with the one i did with eliza there was a point where i said well these are the positives and these are the negatives for multiculturalism and what i was saying there was uh when you talk about uh elements of culture that don't include ethics and morality food dancing clothing yeah that's great that would enrich a society having different cultures insofar as they don't deal with morality when you start having groups that see uh moral ideals differently that's when i'm not saying it's a bad thing but there could be issues that arise in a given community if there's different groups and i just clipped that out put it on tiktok dude so much argument in the comments about what well a lot of them were like this guy's brown and he's talking about the negatives of multiculturalism wow what a great comeback yeah they really showed you neil but it was but (laughs) so but that, no, but that's what I'm going. I purposely try to find the just thirty second sound bites of these podcasts that I know will annoy people or provoke them, and that's what I put as the highlights. That's, you got you got to play the game, mm. and it works. And yeah, you got to push pull. Anyway, I think that's a good point to end it on. Thanks, Thanks for, for listening, listening, guys. 
Uh, just remember anger issues is not a real thing. We're going to normalize that. And neilkahaga.com slash podcasts. You can uh, ask us a question. $10 a month. All of it will go to charity. Uh, for $30 a month, we will do an entire podcast based on your topic suggestion. Uh, otherwise, have a great week. We'll see you, we'll see you next time. Ciao for now.